Coming to you from the Strings and Things studio in Ventura, California, this is the Strings Unraveled Book Club. Hey guys. Hello. Hey. How are you doing? I'm all right. Hey. I have like the tiniest headache and I took some ibuprofen, so hopefully it goes away, but I'll be fine. Right when we wrap up, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I love it. You like this book? I loved it. Yeah. I um, read it over like pretty much one day. It was like maybe a day and a half because it was it's a quick read. Nice book. You're right. Yeah. And then as soon as I finished it, I started a different book, which also takes place in Civil War South and has to do with like slavery and a mother and daughter and so i had to really sit down today and like try and not confuse the two books because it was really easy to do so i'm still in the middle of the other one but it was like which book are we talking about and which story was this but i think i've got it parsed out so i can remember exactly See, i was really glad that i asked that question too because i'm like i know i've been reading several books and i need i haven't finished any of them until today so i had to make sure which i stopped the other one so i could focus on this one I but. do remember as I was reading it that I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have, I ended up, even though I ironically was inspired to read this book because we found a physical copy of it, I ended up with the audio book because that's really what fits in my life. Um, mm -hmm. I listened to it twice because like, it's sort of surreal, the whole telling of it. And, um, like the whole thing feels like the fever dream mm -hmm. is in. Um, so I guess before we talk more, we sh I should read the synopsis. Uh, and also, I don't know if we've actually said the name of the book. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love this book. Duh! Doesn't book. know? <laughs> this book is A Mercy by Toni Morrison. Um, Toni Morrison is one of the greatest writers that we've ever had grace this world. Um, this, I, I was very sorry not to discover her till after her passing. Well, exactly. Like I, I was so grateful that this was read in her voice in the audio. Mm -hmm. Oh, was it? Uh, same. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. I just read it. I didn't listen to it. Not all authors are great at presenting mm -hmm. their work, but she it's like poetry gives another gift in the reading of it and um she is she makes my list of favorite authors um and so after her her death it was i didn't know that i was going to come into this ability to um you know hear her voice again mm -hmm. her work and it was just so beautiful um and if I recall, you guys both said that this was your first Toni Morrison mm -hmm. novel. Yep. Um, did it leave you wanting to read more? Because she has a lot. <laughs> yeah, it made me, I mean, this was a small book, right? Like we said, and I mm -hmm. read it, like the actual physical copy, but I was thinking like I should listen to it because like you were saying, it is pretty surreal. And for a while it took, it took me a little while to get exactly what was happening like yes. where we were, but I, this is one of those books that I could see myself rereading, not only because just so I could understand it better, but because it was very enjoyable to read. And I don't think about rereading books like ever. 
Exactly. I think I've only had the sensation of wanting to reread a book maybe two or three times in the past. Yeah. And um, the fact that I turned it right over and listened to it right away again. Um, and just in the second listening, there were like, I knew I was going to get a better grasp of the timeline, but I also, um, like there were so many details that you come forward on your second, your second go at it. Um, there's a lot of voices, you know, you got to hear different characters, the voice of different characters. Perspective. One, what, yeah, different perspectives, but by voice, I mean, you got to hear each person telling their story kind of in a first person. But because of the surreal, surrealness of it, because it's like poetry, my brain struggles to comprehend poetry. Poetry, I feel like, has a meaning, but my brain doesn't grasp it. I struggle, to, so I have to go slowly through it mm -hmm. and multiple times. So I definitely think I would like to listen to this again because I think things, I, str I focus so much on trying to just figure out who was saying what and halfway through their story i finally figured out oh this is the guy or this is this voice yeah. and then like, i'm like oh the transitions were very jolting at yeah as i got my bearings which was possibly very intentional i mean she's mm -hmm. a crafts person as a writer tony morrison um so i'll read the synopsis um a mercy Florence, a slave, lives and works on Jacob Bark's rural New York farm. Lena, a Native American and fellow laborer on the Bark farm, relates in a parallel narrative how she became one of a handful of survivors of a smallpox plague that destroyed her tribe. Bark's wife, Rebecca, describes leaving England on a ship for the New World to be married to a man she has never seen. The deaths of their subsequent children are devastating, and Bark accepts a young Florence from a debtor in hopes that this new addition to the farm will help alleviate Rebecca's loneliness. Vark himself, an orphan and a poorhouse survivor, describes his journeys from New York to Maryland and Virginia, commenting on the role of religion in the culture of the different colonies, along with their attitudes towards slavery. All these characters are bereft of their roots, struggling to survive in a new alien environment filled with danger and disease. When smallpox threatens Rebecca's life, Florence, now 16, is set to find a black freed man, is sent to find a black freed man who has some knowledge of herbal medicines. Her journey is dangerous, ultimately proving to be the turning point in her life. Morrison examines the roots of racism, going back to slavery's earliest days, providing glimpses of the various religious practices of the time, and showing the relationship between men and women in early America that often ended in female victimization. They are of and for men, people who never shape the world, the world shapes us. As the women journey towards self-enlightenment, Morrison often describes their progress in biblical cadences, and by the end of this novel, the reader understands the significance of the title, A Mercy. Well, that synopsis would be really useful before starting this book. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and yet, like, I mean, part of the pleasure is, like, seeing through, you know, the, I always like the author to reveal the world to us. Um, so yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I didn't know the synopsis beforehand. 
usually that I know that would have helped, but then it might have reshaped how I heard things. And I might not have heard it it's so much in the author's voice. Yeah, I had a hard time when I started reading, understanding, because there's no, I mean, there are chapter breaks, but there's no titles or anything for you to like understand who's speaking because it's, it jumps back and forth between different narrators, but also jumps back and forth between different timelines, which took me mm -hmm. a couple chapters to understand where we were and who we were talking about. And it's like, okay, I can understand where, you know, that Florence is, you know, younger now, or like, it just, it was, it was only, it was confusing for a few chapters. And then it was like, okay, I think I figured out exactly how this works almost, you know, and then after I figured that out, it was easier for me to get, I found it distracting it at the beginning. Me. But 80% into the book. <laughs> I would say it took me a good 35 to 40% in. <laughs> well, so that like confusion kind of mirrors and like understanding the world around our characters. Yeah. Like, really saw that fast forward to the final chapter spoken in a minimize um, voice, which are the only two people to use first person are. Um, Florence and Aminamai, um, like the chaos she describes when she's captured and taken across, you know, the ocean. And they, they're not, they're so unclear about their fate. Like it struck me each time that everyone had to be calmed that the white men were not going to eat them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that's how jumbled that experience and brutality, like the brutality of that experience, that they were afraid they were going to be eaten by who they were sold to. Because, I mean, I guess, like, they were being treated like livestock. Yeah, they didn't know. But um, I, I compared that with also Rebecca's trip across, yeah. you know, in a boat. And hers really, hers was, hers was not much better. Well, you know, she was in the hold with other people that were about the same social status slight not much better than you know the slaves so mm -hmm. i well i mean that's what steerage is about um people being you know steerage right <laughs> like that C cattle <laughs> yeah. um and the i mean like god bless tony morrison like if a novel ever d like illustrated intersectionality like better than this novel <laughs> like, yeah is there a thing? Uh, yeah. She, like, one of the novelties I enjoy the most about this book is this is a piece of American history that is never, a, like, presented in a living fashion. Like, 1690, mm -hmm. and really, I figured out that in Sorrow's story, she's actually with the Barks for 14 years by the time we're in the present in 1690. So this really I didn't realize she was that old when when she went with the you know with uh was told by the Barks. So I she, I kept thinking she was like a toddler or something, but I didn't realize she was almost a woman. She was a well, she was 11 when she was with the um, Sawyer's family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't, I don't think we ever get a clear picture of how long she was with the Sawyer's family. Mm -hmm. um, so she's 11 when she leaves, but
but somewhere in her telling before she gives birth, she says something about having been on the farm for 14 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, what is that? Oh, this can't not be on purpose. It's 1676. That's a hundred years between the revolution. Like, Uh, Oh yeah. Anyway, (laughs) there's this weird thing that in the letter that Florence carries Mm -hmm. that when it finally gets read that it says um, 18 May 1690. Oh, does it? Huh. And in every word on this page is deliberate. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't understand the significance of that stutter. Yeah. She's in a fever dream, but the author has oh. control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it shows through. It um, says 18 May 1670. Oh, 18. 18th of May. I heard it as May. Eight, oh nay. yeah, no, I can get why you would be confused. <laughs> like, nay, I think it's something else. Well, <laughs> like no, that. In listening, it sounded like nay. She had written it wrong yeah. on the page. Okay, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> the author was very deliberate. She was giving us a date, <laughs> <laughs> an actual specific date. Um, but anyway, like this is a piece of history that is never made shown through through life like like Mm-mm. not i don't know it's always not, it's always a textbook a textbook view for very sterile and whitewashed another thing i thought was like a an impression i had is that when rebecca's talking about her childhood in england it all felt so very foreign and frightening and strange mm-hmm. but even though this countryside they're describing and this like formless land of colonists and settlers mixed with you know the first peoples and the just everyone all the characters there it still felt very familiar like it still felt like not so distant a time mm-hmm. but when rebecca's talking about her childhood in england and its brutality and like the torturous horse they saw as entertainment when they're describing the executions that all felt so distant and frightening yeah i don't know if that struck you guys the same way yeah the difference between the two places i mean she notes even like how coming from a place like that that she wasn't necessarily scared to go somewhere else you know and when you when you when you stare death when you stare death with popcorn, <laughs> then somehow, <laughs> then somehow going into the woods with strangers just doesn't seem scary. I'm yep. sure it wasn't popcorn. But I'm sure it was some vittle. <laughs> some vittle. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Who brought the popcorn to the to the gallows? <laughs> as, a, as a movie, yeah. Uh. I wasn't. See, now weird when she describes how abusive her mother was and living in the city where they haven't even seen a tree you know buildings you know going from buildings that are super high you know from the sky versus trees the trees are so tall she's never seen a tree and certainly not a tree so tall that she wasn't even sure that it didn't break the sky when she saw it yeah that's <laughs> like so beautiful um, um i guess that that part 
I resonated with that part, but you know, because my childhood in St. Louis wasn't so great, but but I remember, but being the difference of being in the country versus being in the city. I don't mm-hmm. know. Moving on. Well, no, that's interesting that you share that because, like, did, I don't know if you listened to the author interview after. Did you you listened or you read? I just finished just like one minute before we started. Oh, that's why you were literally saying I have three minutes left. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> I literally had three minutes left to read. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> okay, so so you didn't have time to listen to the authors. <laughs> but I will go back and do so. It's fantastic. I love having listened to Toni Morrison talk about her writing, um, like her experience as an author. Um, and she talks about researching and that most of her time was spent doing research, which, wow. This was pre, this was pre-internet, right? This book? This was, yeah. This is a new, this is one of her newest books. It was like 2016 oh. or something, wasn't it? Oh, okay. No, no, no. Um. 2008, sorry. But no, yeah. No, there's internet then. It doesn't matter if there's internet, right? Because... She, she's looking for primary documentation. Yeah. At the late, <laughs> late 17th century. Like, is there much? <laughs> well, and trying to find documentation that hasn't been whitewashed. Finding documentation that isn't written from, the perspe- from a white perspective. Well, something else that struck me is not just a white perspective, but a purely male perspective. Because, like... Yeah. Um, when um the letter for florence is given to um the people inspecting at the widow's cabin um the women didn't know how to read (laughs) none of the women except florence knew how to read she was the only woman in the room who knew how to read and um i got thinking of like how so many women's voices are lost to history yeah Yeah. it's doubtful that the author was able to find any primary sources written by women. Like there's to give voice to the women of this time. What a gift, even through an imagined mm-hmm. tale. Um, yeah. Okay. So I do have questions. Um, all of the characters on the bark farm are in their own way orphans. What was Morrison's point? Do you think in making that explicit parallel between them all? So that's man, woman and race. It, covers all of um i guess i didn't realize as i was reading it that that was a thing but you know when you read the synopsis and described them all it was like oh yeah i guess they really all are orphans you know i didn't that didn't strike me when i was reading it i don't know why but well you know it's interesting florence we don't ever know is she an orphan like she meant she says early on like oh like maryland is the place of my stone talk i guess that's where my mother and brother's bones will rest if they ever rest like oh wait florence mother florence mother was the cook on the first farm wasn't she yeah Yeah. so she really wasn't orphaned so much but she was given up she was abandoned and she was abandoned she was abandoned but when you hear her story toward the end it's almost like her mother was wanted to give her a chance to be away from to give her a mercy a mercy, a chance to be away from yeah. at least a, a but possibility. In her mind, Here's she a man who, 
because here's a man who doesn't believe in slavery willing to take this one maybe he might treat her better credit he doesn't not believe in slavery he believes it in a way that's convenient for his conscience yeah that's true because he has slaves at the beginning of the book i sort of felt differently about him than i did near the end of the book when he's dying of smallpox or whatever like at the beginning i felt like we were supposed to like him as a character yeah but then i really you really i think it'll feel like they sort of not that they gave up but you didn't feel i didn't feel that way at the end well i i i gave up on seeing him as oh i don't know never mind i don't have words for that i think i yeah i agree you're supposed to like him in the beginning like he's supposed to be a man of principle a man who wasn't gonna I got the sense in the beginning he wasn't someone who liked slavery and he was kind of disgusted by it, by the whole changing of hu- changing of hands of human lives. But then you get to his house and doesn't he kind of impregnate one of them? That's never answered. That's I never think, answered, but somehow... Nina says that she thinks yes. that's what happened, but you don't know. But when Sorrow talks, she, the only man she talks about... At, when she's at the Varks farm as like showing her kindness and interest is the pastor. She, yeah. she never talks about, um, sir coming into like, you know, coming at her that okay. way. But I get the sense too, that she, when she was given away that, that she had been originally impregnated first by one of the teenage boys of the Sawyer house. Yeah. yeah. But I don't well, her mom's trying to get her away from that and at least give her child a chance or something. But well, I want to rewind to like, we don't know that Florence is an orphan, but she's an orphan in her own mind. Right. Yeah. She doesn't know what her family became, but yeah, she's decided that her mother and brother are dead. So maybe they're just dead to her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But we never know if they are dead or alive. There's no reason to suspect that they're dead. And it's legitimate for her to feel the way that she does. She doesn't understand. Yes. I mean, she was too young. I don't remember how old she was when she left. Eight. Yeah. So she wasn't old enough to understand exactly what her mom was doing. When you're eight, you still need a family. Yeah. And I think the whole book is like a mesh of misunderstood misunderstood points of view. Uh huh. So, yeah. Like Florence like, doesn't understand her mother. Like Lena and Rebecca when Rebecca first comes, but, Rebecca was told all kinds of horrible things about native about native women and native people. So she comes with this natural, already built-in prejudice and hatred. Um. And then, it, I mean, eventually they overcome it, but it's interesting to hear it from her perspective and from Lena's perspective. Absolutely. Um, but you can see how their troubles come from the idea that they are never fully aware, nor do they ask what other people are thinking. <laughs> like, they presume to know and act under that presumption, but they never never really understand each other and when you get a view into each of their minds you don't um you see how how things have gone awry Uh it reminds it reminds me of a t-shirt i saw today i saw this one with a t-shirt that said i'd agree with you but then we'd both be wrong Ah. (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of like their same attitude of i talked to you and i maybe i'd listen to your point but then we you know (laughs) yeah 
Um, so how, so we t we're talking about how all of them see it differently, like see the world differently and perceiving the world differently, but why do you think that Morrison put that line of connectivity throughout all of the characters? I don't know. Um, I think they're all so disparately different, like, and they, they try to, there's some description of, um, perceiving, I can't remember who brings it at first, but the idea that they are their own family unit. Like, um, what are the, the men's names are Willard and oh yeah, Scully. I think mm -hmm. it's when Scully has his moment. I think so. He, but it's said before that by someone else, and I can't remember which of the women thinks it. But anyway, um, that that they all had tried to be a family of sorts until um, Sir had died for mm -hmm. Jacob. Mm -hmm. That couldn't happen anymore. Um, so they're all alone in the world, and then they make their own little pod, and then they're alone again. Like I can see that that is what she illustrated, but I'm not totally sure of the deeper intention there. You have to continue to think about that. Yeah, <laughs> I have to reread it before I come up with that answer. That's what I'm thinking. I need to think. I need to re-listen to it or listen to it. Um. Why is Lena so distrustful of the blacksmith, a free black man? Is she correct in her suspicion or is he his free status what starts the wheels in motion for tragedy to befall the group? I think like you were saying how they're a small family of sorts. Um, these people are all that Lena knows that she has. You know, I think it's reasonable for her to be afraid of what could happen because she can see that Florence feels like she's, I mean, she's like obsessed with him, right? And I can understand why Lena would be scared that that might take her away from them. Well, I mean, I know it's a different time too, that like a 16 year old girl is really considered like ready to be a woman and be, you know, be out in the world for her um you know if she were eligible to be married and go run her own household but to remember to be a being a 16 year old girl lovesick like it's yeah. so all-consuming um so i suppose that it's not so much his free status as it is that he's an interloper who oh. disrupts the nature of their family Maybe because his free status means that he doesn't have, he's not held to the same rules of, of structure that they are. And maybe that's what, but yet he's with them, but he doesn't have to stay with them. I don't know. And it seems like he's there for a while and then he's gone. I never understand quite how, why he's gone. Because he's done. He built the gate. Said, I thought he was going to stay on for more buildings. He's uh, uh, just a blacksmith. What else would he do? Uh, yeah, it's. I think he's just think, there to build the gate. Yeah, no, uh, I don't know how long he was there for. Um, long enough to shack up with with one again, the sixteen year old. So I mean, guys, don't you know how long it takes to build an iron gate? No, not in the sixteen uh, hundreds. I don't. Or um, at all. I don't know. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well. I can be like three was, weeks. <laughs> well, okay. There's no welding arcs, so the metal has to be forged and formed. You can't. You don't have a, a blowtorch and a mask anymore. But 
You know so who maybe Tony uh -huh. Martin. Yeah, she researched it. She knows. Yep. Um, I think also going back to why Lena might distrust him is she's Florence's mother figure, yes. and I think she knows her more. And being an older, wiser woman, I think, like you were saying, she can understand that this is just an infatuation of a sixteen-year-old. Yep. And, you know? and she goes to great lengths to share what happened to her when she thought she was in love and had a lover who yeah. who turned upon her yeah um, it's like <laughs> we all um don't want to listen to our mothers when our mothers look at the world and say hey look at what i live <laughs> you're like yeah yeah but this is different mom i love him <laughs> You don't, don't know what it is. You're old. You, <laughs> you've never had this before. <laughs> this is all new for me. <laughs> um, the grasping at motherhood is so vital. Um, Poor Rebecca. Well, baby after baby after baby. You finally think you've got one that lives a while. Only they only have her hit in the head. That's horrible. Well, which actually I didn't realize this was the next question, but Sarah becomes complete, as her name, after the birth of her child. Discuss the role of motherhood in these characters' lives and how it affects their decisions. Also, I didn't notice until the second, tell, second listen that she does not tell the readers her name. Sorrow, or not Sorrow, um, Florence tells us her name. And remember the last time that Sorrow withheld her name? She withholds her name, her true name. We don't know what her true name is because only twin knows it. Right. Like, so the baby. Okay. Twin is like her imaginary sister, right? Yeah. Like, and maybe she's always had that twin, yeah. you know, the ghost of maybe a lost sibling. I uh, thought it might also be a way that she dealt with the stress of, of her youth, of, of things going around her. When things got overwhelming, she sort of retreated into private conversations with. I mean, you she know, was, she survived a a solitary shipwreck, right? Like, remember our last fake twin? I was just thinking, what book was that? That was um, uh, the one. Hum if you don't know the words. Yes. Yes. I was just yeah. thinking. Well, didn't I read another book where this happened? <laughs> like just now, that came to me too. <laughs> Um, so discuss the role of motherhood in these characters' lives and how it affects their decisions. Okay, so we were going there naturally. Um, I mean, it's such a through line throughout the whole book. It, it, every oh, character, yeah. you know, Florence is it. A, a motherless child, which I think there's almost nothing sadder than a motherless child. Mm -hmm. um, Lena is want to be, she is both motherless and want to be mother. Um, Rebecca so tries. We don't, I don't think Sorrow ever knew her mother. I don't know if we knew that or not. It feels like she's a missing piece of Sorrow. Like, she's not a part of Sorrow's identity that she talks about to us. Mm -hmm. Because she would have been too young when she was on the ship. Well, I wonder if she, if her mother was even ever on the ship. Like, I was sort of imagining. No, I, I get the feeling that Sorrow was on the ship by herself. I didn't think she was with. Because you I just never hear any connection in her story of how she gets here. 
she never well, even talks mentions a parent you don't know anything about her though you don't know her name you don't know no. where she's coming from so it would be understandable that she also doesn't know her mother about her mother mm-hmm. her but she does mention a parent the captain was her father mm. oh that's right she does mention, that's right because she had never until the shipwreck she had never been on land she'd spent her entire life on a right. boat so i was imagining that like Sorrow's mother, maybe she was kind of like one of the women um, that came over with Rebecca, chosen as the captain's favorite, and then maybe she died in childbirth. Could be. And so, then, do you think? Do you think her father was white or black? Um, because well, for well, if she if she was if she was the captain's daughter, it would have been quite a thing to have a black captain of a ship. Well, I, wouldn't, I doubt that he was black. I'm sure he was white. And in yeah. fact, oh. we don't even really know if Sorrow is from Africa. We don't. I guess not. We don't. All we know about well, Sorrow is that she has unruly red hair. Yeah, you don't really know a whole lot about her. But I thought you're right. She had unruly red hair. But why would she automatically be taken as a, I guess, as a servant? Well, I. Be, I mean, because they're all probably maybe very in the way terms. Um, well, maybe and, in the way that orphans were orphans had no social status. Well, an orphan would have been a servant or something else. What is the little boy who is with the blacksmith? What is it, Mackay? Uh, Malachi? Something like that. Um, he. Is- I thought they mentioned that she was a mulatti or something like that, or was that somebody else? It's, I it was easily confused. In the beginning, when Jacob is thinking about the rum trade and talking to the guy um, in the pub, he's talking about all the, the stew that is Barbados. It's like, uh, he's like, oh, if it's such a fatal plague, the how old is, like, yeah. oh, the, <laughs> the work, workmen are, you know, the um, workforce is unlimited. Because um, they can always bring us more, and then there are births, of course, it's a and then goes, that will never die. It'll last forever. <laughs> Which part? The humans or the sugar cane? Yes. Yeah. It says so. I found. Um, I just did a little googling um, on this website called Lit Charts, literary charts, I guess. Um, it says Sorrow is a young woman and an orphan who works on the Vark's farm. Several times during the book. Characters imply that Sorrow is mixed race and heavily suggest that Sorrow suffers from some kind of mental illness or possession by evil spirits. So she's of mixed race, I suppose, is all we are supposed to understand. But um, we, don't, we don't know what that recipe was. Right. <laughs> we well, know <laughs> it's very possible then that her father was the captain of the ship, he being probably white and her fa- her mother might not have been yeah yeah um but and so another point of the throw throwing away people's lives like she was probably throw away to the captain like yeah she doesn't know anything about her mother it's, she's not even a part of sorrow's consciousness Mm-mm. having yeah. had a mother isn't or even Missing it is not part of her consciousness. Um, Which tells me that her mother was gone from her life very early on. 
So for Sorrow, her becoming a mother and becoming her new name complete, mm-hmm. like that is what, what motherhood is for her. It is that missing piece. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, it's a fruitless search and striving. Like I've never been able to understand in human history how women carried on through Mm -hmm. such loss like the loss that is described in this book for rebecca of the many children it's i kept trying to figure out how to count how many babies i thought there was three sons buried at least and finally one daughter named patrician who lived to how old like 10 or something huh yeah she was little she was little yeah she was i thought but i thought she had a couple of her children live a little bit longer but then were killed by disease i don't know made none of the none of the brothers made it to be out of infancy Mm -hmm. but there was somewhere in there where she says something about the babies that followed I don't know if she's talking about, and I think it's when Lena's speaking. I don't know yeah. if she's talking about the babies that followed first or babies that followed Patrician. But four dead children. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, didn't I, think there were, I didn't think there were any babies after Patrician. I thought Patrician died. No, I thought that the husband died, then Patrician died, and then she got ill. No. I think Patrician no. died first. Patrician's uh. dead is what softened Jacob's heart to be willing to take Florence. Because in this guy, he's like, because he thought his wife, it might ease the pain of his wife's loss. And if she were kicked in the head by a mule, she would not be so sad. Right. Um, Turns out Lena would be real upset. (laughs) I mean, it's a, it's a testament to the, to the strength of, of women that that happened throughout history all the time it's only in recent history that that's not as big of a thing that we have to deal with you know infant mortality rates are you know skyrocketed back in the day whereas nowadays it's not something it's okay it's more out of the ordinary for that to happen now than like for hundreds and thousands of years that happened yeah it's i remember i remember going to parenting classes when i was pregnant with my firstborn um, in the nineties. And they had said that as of the turn of the century in ni- in the early 1900s, a woman would have to get birth, give birth 12 times to see three of her stu- of her children live b- beyond 12 years old. Uh, yeah. As a, so that tell, I mean, and that's after industrial age and better conditions. Can you imagine how many, so, I mean, can you imagine giving birth 12 times and having nine of your children die? No. Like, that's unfathomable to my heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, who else? Um, I you mean, know, we could talk about uh, Florence's mother, who we don't hear from until the end of the book. Her perspective. That payoff is so perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because I think as adult women reading it, 
we suspect that at least by the time Jacob tells it. So that's the second time we hear about Florence being offered. First we hear Florence describing it, and then we hear Jacob's take on it as part of the debt and his, his heart changing to the idea of taking her on. At that moment, of course, I'm like, well, your mom's trying to help you. Mm-hmm. But you don't really believe it until you hear that last telling from Amunamai. Um, yeah. It does sound awful. Don't take me. Take her. Here. Here's my daughter. Definitely the first one, the first telling through Florin's eyes, I think mom is a villain. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, who's just smitten with the new baby. Um, which she never matures out of. Like, it's both her her downfall and her trans, like, watershed moment is that if she, because she has the dream where she sees the little boy that the blacksmith cares for in the same role as her little brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never, ever forgives that moment, which is part of her hatred of that little boy, which keeps her from being with the blacksmith. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like Florence rejected motherhood. Yeah. Because she had Maybe not- because that's what she experienced. She experienced to her mothers reject their babies and that's what was natural to her. Well, I'm not maybe. Like I, I won't discount that, but like she saw the little boy as a roadblock to the blacksmith's love, just like her brother was a roadblock to her mother's love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sorrow believes that her first child may have been alive when Lena placed it in the river. Could this be true? What are the implications? Also, discuss why Lena distrusts and ostracizes Sorrow and if she is justified. Hmm. I did. There was a. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I didn't question. When we heard from Sorrow's perspective, for a long time, you think of her as this like unstable person but i felt like when we read from her perspective that i that i understood her better and i didn't question she thought that she saw the baby breathe or whatever and i didn't question like i believed her that i think she did see that like i don't know why lena would lie to her like that but it's yeah, I guess it just boils down to why does she not trust Sorrow? I didn't believe that Lena killed the baby until right now, like as you're talking. Because hmm. going back to Lena's distrust of the blacksmith and thinking of that through the idea of that as an interloper. Yeah. I don't think that Lena has it in her, her to kill a thriving baby. I feel... Okay, what is it when people are, I can't think of the right word. I've been sitting here trying to think of it when people believe in myths and they believe in, like, they... Superstitious? No, no, no. You know, like, the, like don't walk under a ladder, be worried about, about a black cat crossing your path. What's that called? Superstitious. Come on. Oh, is that what you said? Superstitious? Yeah. I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> no, not superstitious, That's but superstitious. Uh, just you know, black cats and ladders and mirrors. What is that called? <laughs> oh, not oh, the thing that sounds like superstition. <laughs> I think that she is very superstitious. If she, it, because I mean, it, which 
if you think about it, is something that they, she also touched upon religious superstition and other superstitions. There are different parts. That was another key part um, that connected the different cultures. Aren't they um, superstitious? Like every character yeah. is yeah. superstitious. So in her brain, none of the bad luck happened until sorrow came. And she didn't want to believe it at first. But if everything, every bad thing keeps happening, because she's just, she needs to blame it on somebody. And sorrow is old when she comes to live with them. What? She's remember. 11. And she comes to them pregnant. Yeah, right? she's a pregnant 11-year-old. Right. Wow. Yeah. So you could see from Lena's perspective, yes, like you said, That's I don't bad think luck. she has the, the, I don't think she has it in her to murder a thriving baby, but I think that she knows that this girl can't handle being a mother, maybe, you know? She's she might have thought of it as a mercy killing because she might have thought it was more bad luck bringing into the house. She might have thought she was trying to protect the mistress and and her her one living child. I mean, you, you could know. think of it as protecting Lena. You could think of it as her trying to protect Sorrow. You can think of it, you know, in a hundred different ways, but you don't actually know because Lena doesn't Does talk about even- it. I thought Lena even said that she'd heard that, but she didn't want to believe it until the death, till the last death, till more death kept coming. The death of the master, the death of, I don't know, my timelines are still all turned around. Well, I'm trying to think, actually, I remember now, I misspoke. It's Rebecca who said she'd been there for 14 years, which means that Lena had been there for 15 years. I can't, so I don't know how long Sorrow has been there. I know that Sorrow is 11 when she comes to the farm. Uh Uh-huh. Don't you think it's weird that she never think she never sees sorrow as a victim? That this that this was done to sorrow that it was it was she was victimized. Right. And Lena How can you not Lena doesn't see herself as a victim. No, but what I'm saying is if you saw an eleven year old come pregnant to you, wouldn't you have seen felt that someone had victimized this young child? But that's not how Lena was victimized, and that's not how she was um treated nor how she views herself she doesn't view herself as a victim what i'm saying is she doesn't lena does not ever doesn't seem to have the compassion of seeing sorrow as a victim yeah i don't know why sorrow's the cause sorrow is the cause of bad luck not the victim of bad luck in her mind yes because that's not lena doesn't have the concept of victimhood I'm not oh, like to praise her. I'm just saying she doesn't have that concept because it's, it's not how she was treated nor what she was taught. She was taught she brought it upon herself, which is the only uh, way she can view sorrow, even though what 11-year-old brings it upon themselves? I don't understand, why she's, I don't understand why she's open and motherly to Florence, but, but not, not to sorrow. Like, what is it about her? Because I, I guess it comes down to, like you're saying, superstition. If she's a mentally unwell person, then in her mind, it probably comes from the devil, you know, that she maybe has possessed or has had some sort of experience or something like that that she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand mental illness. Upon citing her, she hated her, right? Yeah. 
And so, I mean, red hair throughout history has been considered unfavorable. Like, lots of redheaded pe- women were considered witches. Yeah. Hair of flame from mayhem. That's something Rebecca says. Mm. So, um, of course, that's someone who's actually burning at the stake. But so maybe Lena feels justified as the reader. I think we can't like, I think all three of us have expressed that we don't understand why Lena behaves the way she does in one no, hand. But maybe, and okay, then- maybe, maybe it came, came down to when Le- Lena was exposed to the religious people earlier in her life, even though, and she was kind of forced to join the religion, even though she didn't believe it in her heart. But some of that superstitious, the religious superstition rubs off on you even yeah. the, it, the culture still taints you in some ways well she embraced their religion i thought she didn't at first i thought part of maybe that was someone else that didn't well, maybe I don't know. at first but she did she, she embraced did. it and then later she came back to trying to piece together a personal identity through what she could remember mm-hmm. she goes through this process of boxing up and keeping what she remembers from her childhood in the rights and the things she learned and then she boxes up and, and purposefully forgets the rest that is not of use to her like um i noticed rebecca also came and when she first came was not really connected to the religion religious er- people of the area was why she was glad that there was some distance between them and the villagers but after the death of her husband it's like she and after her own sickness and recovery, it's like she flips a 180 and becomes hyper vigilant religious. Right? Yeah. It's, and you, in the second lesson, I heard it happening because she has like her internal dialogue is the kind of, I think it's the meatiest and longest, at least the longest with one straight through line. Um, that you hear her like reasonable, 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 then pleading, 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 and then her transition to like, God, if you let me, I mean, she never says this. So if you let me live, I'm going to believe. Right. (laughs) But But clearly she does. (laughs) Yeah, but she does. Like the other women describe her like quiet muttering to herself, like Sarah's like the silent speaking that she does. And um yeah i thought that there was an interesting take she goes now why did we think it was she goes why do we think it was bad when when she spoke to herself don't we all process to ourselves you know he does he processes it and talks so loud himself when he's doing a list of what he needs to do why is it i thought that was an issue she even pointed out one of the characters Mm -hmm. i i can't keep track of who um pointed out why did we think that she was crazy because she talked to herself when we all sort of talked to ourselves. Mm-hmm. But somehow when she does it, it's crazy. I, it might have been sorrow in the wrap, or I'm sorry, um, Florence in the wrap up. Like ah, yeah. later, Florence is like, sorrow's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sorrow really does become like she perseveres to the, t- you know, rises to the top of her circumstances and this story. She mm-hmm. is a blissful mother. She is looking towards the future because she's thinking about escaping. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I'm not sure that Lena killed the baby. Is Sorrow, <laughs> I is, don't know. Does Sorrow get pregnant more than once? Yes. Okay. She is pregnant twice. Once at 11 and once in 1690. And during the fever of her mistress. And she gives birth to that baby, who is a baby girl, who is healthy, and she dotes on. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, Florence tries to interpret signs from the natural world all around her. From where does she do de- owls? <laughs> yeah. From where does she develop these superstitious beliefs? How do they serve her in navigating the colonial world in her young adulthood? I think she gets them from all around. She gets doses of it from everyone around her. Mm-hmm. And it starts with the um, the the priest who's helping them learn. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, her brush with <laughs> with ruin in the widow's cabin, which I think is like such an interesting vignette to show people forcing their will on others. Mm-hmm. Florence is just passing through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what she's she's. They took her papers. Yeah, they never. They sent her on her way, but never gave her her papers back. Her on her way, the dog escaped. Yeah, the daughter and helped her escape. Oh. They and wouldn't she, have let her leave. No, and they were getting no. ready to, to, you know, ostracize her demon or right. take her out as a demon, which Jane is the name of the girl in the cabin who they think is possessed. Right. I love their parting because yeah. it's like, thank you, thank you. And the girl is like, no, thank you, because you came. They stopped looking at me. <laughs> Yeah, that gave me a break. You've got it bad, but maybe someone else will have it worse. <laughs> um, yeah, that whole vignette was so scary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a departure from where we had been in the book, and it was like, oh, this is. I don't like. I don't like this. No, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> um, I think that. Um, I just, I love their parting too. When Florence asks, are you a demon? And Jane says, why, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, maybe she is, but like yeah, yeah, her willingness and willfulness to still be an independent thinking woman, like, you know, and well, that desire of the world to stamp that out, especially at that time. Any, and any kind of independent thinking in a woman was considered the devil's work. Of course. <laughs> any woman who was not compliant to her father's or her husband's will must be possessed of a demon <laughs> in those days. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the re- religiosity that she's exposed to, she gets Lena's influence and then perhaps even to her earlier days or maybe that brush with like demonic possession in the cabin when she goes to the blacksmith's house and house and she's charged with caring for the little boy she thinks the corncob doll holds his power is it like his or his talisman yeah and then she sees he throws it in the corner discarded so he's not protected anymore (laughs) yeah I kind of thought she lost it there. I kind of thought, yeah, she she has some schizophrenia or something going on. Because that's... Really? She's a girl in a world. Like, like this question. Yeah, I mean, her whole journey has been 
long and terrifying and then she gets to this place and she's like she's not a mother right and the blacksmith's like hey take care of this kid for me and the kid's scary to her like what is she supposed to do and karen probably not hit it over the head did she hit it over the head and attack the child no (laughs) okay i'm totally mixing up stories i think and i tried to catch it both times i listened i'm pretty sure that she because it says and then i had the hammer or something like that i'm pretty sure she beat the blacksmith up with the hammer yeah yeah i don't remember exactly how that went down i think he sort of left it as hmm but he must have left but he left and i guess i'm so she was left to watch the boy while he went back to help the mistress which was no help at all he was not actually needed this is a she pulls the kid's arm and like pops it out of its socket oh um which when they're at a certain age can be is kind of easy to accidentally do my brother-in-law almost did that to my son when my son wouldn't stop bothering him he pulled my son by the arm and yanked him up and said stop of which we all got on his case about because you don't touch my child but at the same time child almost and ian was about six yeah my niece leg walking off of a step like children's bones are. i broke my arm three times when i was a kid like it's easy what? to do <laughs> yeah. so which i think i mean she's like I, you know, it, it snapped like the snap of a, a chicken bone when you're eating or something like that like she didn't realize her force upon him yeah yeah uh, and she tried and she was gonna explain she goes let me explain but he's like no yeah well there's a part um because they talk about like when Toni Morrison is interviewed at the end of the audiobook, the interview asks about, um, oh, actually, that's the next question. Just kidding. <laughs> I won't ask that. <laughs> We're ahead of it. Yeah. Um, so do you think that like we didn't answer the second part. So like, how do her superstitious beliefs serve her in the colonial world? I think that she knows when she's in grave danger. Like, obviously, she knew that the situation in the cabin was dangerous. I don't know that she really understood how dangerous it was. Yeah. Um, and and then I think it's a disservice to her in dealing with the little boy that yeah. she thinks that he's a demon sent to take her future away. Yeah. Um, okay. What does the blacksmith mean that Florence has become a slave? What do you think of the free blacksmith treatment of the 16 year old Florence? You know, she, she, I was just looking in the book at that part. She says to him, are you mean like they're yelling and he's telling her to leave. She says, are you meaning I am nothing to you that I have no consequence in your world? It's like, well, yeah. I mean, you, you were someone that, lived at a house where he worked once and you did couple up right but if you think about it from his perspective he's a free man like he can go as he pleases like in his world i don't think she's of any consequence to him yeah and when he does show up and expects the most out of him he's like why why i'm here we can be we can be happy together again and he's like what no no i i don't 
I don't totally agree with the idea that he didn't hope she could be more because there's this huge tension when he arrives at the farm, right? He arrives, he looks at the mistress. He's like, you're fine. You didn't do anything. They feed him. Sorrow's waiting outside listening. And finally, Lena says, where is he? Or where is she? Uh-huh. Yeah. And he says something evasive. And then he said, will she, when will she be back? When she darn well feels like it. <laughs> in her, like in her time. She'll, well, but so then he figured that she'd be coming back. Or maybe. Or he's just evading the answer. And he, cause he still never ta- talks about what happens. We don't know that she ever comes back. Yes, we do. We do? Yeah. Dang it. I, I, the problem when you try to l- binge listen to it is you miss so much. Like I told you, I got confused over who was doing what. Confusing. That's why I had to listen a second time. It's not you. Like, for sure, okay. it's not you. Um, he, she comes back two days later, which I think is amazing because it took her more than two days to get to him and through great peril. Yep. But she yeah. comes straight back. It's not perilous. Like she talks a little bit about the trouble of coming back and that now mom, you'll be so, I mean, she doesn't say mom, but you know, she's speaking to her mom in her head that she'd be so proud. My feet are as hard as, um, Oh, that's right. Slippers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's kind of, I got the sense when he said that you are, you are already enslaved, you're a slave. I thought he meant more than just her physical condition of being owned by someone else mentally the only place mentally the only place she was going to be secure and call home was her slave home i kind of like well it's like when a horse gets loose they they always make their way back to the barn kind of idea it's allowing the so in the last bit from the mother there's a portion where she says um to she says, she speaks of like taking dominion over someone else or giving mm-hmm. it to someone else that, that Hayden describes them. Like, um, I mean, if you can you look for it, Katie? Is it, uh, yeah. Is it like at the very, very end? Yeah. Very, 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 the last paragraph. Yeah. So she um, says, like something about when you, when dominion is taken from you, it's one thing. So it says, um, to be given dominion over another is a hard thing. To rest dominion over another is a wrong th- thing. And to give dominion of yourself to another is a wicked thing. Okay. So that sentence, I think, completely illustrates the answer to this. Like She wants to give her dominion of herself from the mistress and master to the blacksmith. Yes in her mind like it's like not even her physical being no it's somebody else to be in charge of her yeah like instead of her taking her charge of herself yeah and so like he left this precious child in her care to come back so like i think that he always saw the idea that they could possibly become a family maybe and that's why he was yeah. evasive about and until he comes home and sees the child harmed. And then right. I mean, yep. right? Like, you want to and then he's like, hell no. Yeah. So so then when he sees that behavior, that is when he makes judgment on her and, and turns his heart from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She thinks it's happened already before he's even left, which is why she's despairing. Yeah. 
Um, what do you think of the free of his treatment of sixteen-year-old Florence? I mean, he gave. Her, I think he gave her a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he I, saw that she couldn't be what he saw the potential for her. He, you know. Mm-hmm. Like someone, so she was shown great kindness in the spectrum of what the that world would allow her as a child, but she couldn't show that same kindness to a child of the same bad luck. Right. Yeah. Or similar bad luck. Like I think he did the only thing he could do. She wasn't ready to be what he thought she could be. So he had to send her back. Sort of. I think he didn't send her back. He just, huh? She picked up a hammer and beats him. And then leaves. But then he leaves. But that's before he is that. Wait, he's at that, his home. He leaves. To, is that after he gets back from from helping in air quotes? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I. I'm, There's something like the last thing she says in her moment of speaking at that time is. It says. Having the hammer in her hand, right? It says, now I am living the dying inside. Not again, not ever. Feathers lifting, I unfold. The claws scratch and scratch until the hammer is in my hand. <laughs> and that's it. Oh! Also, the claws scratch the feathers. Because that goes back to Lena breaking the necks of the chickens before she left. <laughs> so, she, so before she was bought by Jacob... She talks about how she killed two roosters and put them in the shoes of her lover. Lena says that? Yeah. Huh. So there's just a connectedness of the, the prophecy fulfillment that the blacksmith was not going to be good. Yeah. For, but I think she took a hammer to him. Yeah. I mean, the ha- hammer was in her hand. And she <laughs> comes back unscathed. Yeah. And she doesn't come back bruised and beaten. So uh, that's true. So she definitely must have gotten the better of him. Well, in her last voice, when she's describing scratching the words um, with a nail in the new house, she said something about, I don't know if you live and if you'll have to come here or crawl to see these words. Hmm. Which then I finally connected when I heard that the second time, like, Oh, she might have murdered him. <laughs> yeah. Dang. <laughs> I don't uh, know. Thinking about all of the characters of A Mercy and the time and place in which they live. The Wait, early- sorry. I just, I just flipped to a different page. Uh-huh. Uh, it says, The hammer strikes air many times before it gets to you where it dies in weakness. You wrestle it from me and toss it away. Our clashing is long. I bare my teeth to bite you, to tear you open. You pull my arms behind me. I twist away and escape you. The tongs are there close by. I'm swinging and swinging hard. Seeing you stagger and bleed, I run. All right. So she didn't kill him. So she didn't kill him. Sorry. <laughs> but she fought him off. <laughs> she probably could have or yeah. wanted to. If she killed him, they'd probably be in pursuit of her. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so there'd be no, you know the epilogue of it all of uh, I don't know would they, would they because he was still a black man even though he was a freed man well yeah but she was a woman who assaulted a a free person that's true um 
And besides, everybody loves a good, you know, flogging, hanging, um, I don't popcorn. Know. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> I'd still be hanging, I guess. Maybe a, a burning at the stake because she is a reckless woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I never understood that part of history, that that was public, ex- public deaths were entertain as entertainment. I never got that, but that spectacle, like it's a spectacle that speaks to our animal nature. And I don't think it's fully left us either. And in a world where people were a lot closer to death and around death more often, it wasn't as uh, horrific, I guess. Mm, I think that the girl, like girl, Rebecca speaks to it being horrific, but really having no other choice. And then the people around her were enjoying it. So it must be enjoyable. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like that's absent from our culture. We've just supplanted it with, um... Horror films. Podcasts about murder? Acting out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, wait, did you just say podcast about murder? Yeah. (laughs) Good podcast. Um, (laughs) we've just, we've just changed the form of it and we play act it instead of, um, and synthesize synthesize it rather than really, um, and yeah. Sometimes people are attracted to it for real too, as a form of entertainment. Um, thinking about all of the characters, did I read this already? No. I think I interrupted you. Oh, okay, good. It was a good interruption. Okay. Thinking about all of the characters of A Mercy and the time and place in which they live, the early American wilderness, what drives them the most? Economics, love, duty, faith, survival. I mean, in my mind before you read that list, I thought survival. Yeah. I but still think survival. What f- it takes a different form for each character. Like I would agree yeah. survival, but it's a different form for each character. Like like for Jacob, Jacob no. Jacob surviving is not enough because that is what they the women reflect back that when he became restless and wanting wanting more that that was what led to his downfall. Another house, a bigger house. Yeah. So status and economics for him were a bigger deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Portuguese uh, owners of Iminamai, they are driven by economics and comfort. Mm -hmm. Florence seems like she's driven by love most of all. Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe there's no one answer that really connects them other than they're all driven by something because each character has their own personal desire that they're that they focus their life on i think scully's driven by faith he's one of the indentured male servant or yes um he has faith that his term's going to end and that he's going to get paid out his Mm -hmm. i forget there's a name for the fee whatever it was called right his service yeah the indentured fee but I don't know. Is he ever really going to, because they keep tacking on more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it just is different for each character because I think for sorrow for a long time, it was survival, you know, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. But then she becomes a mother. And then I think it's probably not, I don't know. Um, well, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I think that um, I will probably enjoy it again <laughs> at some yep. future time. Um, I look forward to listening to it 
with the author's voice. Oh, it was such a gift. Um, and it, I, that's maybe why it seemed like poetry because her voice is like that of a poet's. I mean, it reads like poetry. It, it's almost like listening to her voice has a very musical quality to it. It was, um, you know, she told so many people's stories so perfectly, even though they were so different. Uh-huh. Like each of her characters were voiced so completely and beautifully, even though every one of them was so different. And I mean, and yet the same. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I want to go back and reread some of the Toni Morrison I've already read. There are several books I've never read. Um, the two that I for sure remember reading are The Bluest Eye and Sula. Um, I was not aware when I read The Bluest Eye that that was actually her debut novel. Mm. No. It's such a, it's so rich. Um, so if you also, or anyone listening, would also like to delve into more Toni Morrison, um, my current like knitter I'm most obsessed with and designer I'm most obsessed with is drunk knitter, Sophia um, Tally. And she's doing a knit along or make along and um, book club. Book club, she, yeah. She's doing um, the bluest eye. And there's a free pattern that goes with it. So mm-hmm. if, um, well, listening to this, you're thinking that, you know, you'd like to participate in that. I think it's really fun. I really enjoyed the things I've been making that are by this designer. And it's definitely a good read. So another like shocking tale of children mistreated but <laughs> it's uh, beautifully told <laughs> um, i mean thank you tony morrison for telling us these heart-wrenching stories with such beauty uh, to go yeah, with and grace and yeah like the ability to bear witness to these stories but in a way <laughs> i mean she doesn't shy away from any struggle that you're gonna I mean, you know, you feel, you know, the sorrows that these characters go through and it's, but it's done in such a beautiful way that it's, it's, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. You get a very personal glimpse of their own voice. Not, that's why I appreciate it. It's she, the way she gave each person their own voice, you could almost hear them and you didn't feel like someone was telling their story. It was very different, a very different perspective. Um, so thank you, Tony Morrison. Rest in peace. Um, I have a um, a book recommendation. Just piggybacking off of that. So oh yeah, I, is this the book you're reading? Yes. Yeah, so I'm reading currently a book called Conjure Women. Ooh. And it's by uh, it's by an author named Afia Atacora, and I picked it up because I had just finished A Mercy, and I was at Barnes and Noble poking around, and I flipped over the back of this book, and it said. If you are grieving for Toni Morrison, Afia Atacora is the young writer to read now. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Her (laughs) astonishing debut takes the reader to a Reconstruction era Southern plantation where two little girls become unlikely friends. Conjure Women brings to life an indelible character whose talents from midwifery to voodoo will yield her own unconventional path to power and freedom. And I'm about halfway through it, but I'm loving every second of it. So, Conjure Women. Yeah. Because it was, yeah, I am still mourning Toni Morrison. Yeah. 
as the world should for a long time. It doesn't feel the same necessarily. Like the writer's prose isn't the same. I mean, it couldn't be. But like I said, it was easy for me to conflate these two worlds in my head because <laughs> I, it was just one right after the other. Well, that should be a good follow up. Yeah. All right, Karen's ready to pick. She gets to pick our next book. What will she pick out of her cute little jar? Okay, so it's one of the new ones I've added today because I see the paper. Oh, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. That's on my list. I'm so glad you picked that. That's been on my list for a while. All right. Cool. Read. Who is it by? Yeah. What? Kylie Reed. K-I-L-E-Y-R-E-I-D. Um, real quick, anybody else have any book recommendations? There was another one I wanted to read, but it, but I was hoping that Not wasn't it. Jar. <laughs> you haven't read it yet. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Yeah, hold on. I don't know if I can access it while I'm while I'm on the Zoom. But I, I, I have a really it. quick um, description of that book, Such a Fun Age, because it's been on my Goodreads like want to read list for a while. Um, uh huh. It says, in the midst of a family crisis one evening, white blogger Alex Chamberlain calls her African-American babysitter, Amira, asking her to take toddler Briar to the local market for distraction. There, the security guard accuses Amira of kidnapping Briar, and Alex's efforts to right the situation turn out to be good intentions, selfishly mismanaged. Sounds good. That's, that's the oh, there's another one I want to read that just came up called The Bone Jar. By S. W. Kane, the bone jar. Read lately. <laughs> I have not read it. It, it came up on the uh, the first reads for Amazon for like June. Nice. So nice. It, so if you if you're interested in it, I think it's still free. All if right. you get Amazon Prime, but uh, yeah. I so I definitely okay. My must read is um, today will be different by Maria Semple. It was not as rich of a story as um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But it's set in the same reality. So it's the same Seattle neighborhood and they go to the same, like this, her son goes to the same school as Bernadette's daughter. So it's the same. Is it written the same way? Um, no, it's more linear. Um, and only from one voice. There's only- And what's the name of this thing? Um, today will be different. Right. Um, I have another one that's completely different from anything else that we've really talked about. It's nonfiction, but I'm reading The Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel. And it's a nonfiction story. Michael was the is a journalist and it's written about his experience interviewing the um he's known as like the North Pond Hermit and he's like the most secluded person in human history that we know of so this man like wow. went to the woods and lived by himself for like 27 years before he was arrested for stealing because that's how he lived he just stole from cabins and summer camps and stuff but it's about the author's experience like interviewing him and it's fascinating i'm not done with it yet but it's i really really am enjoying it all right cool so i'll well, throw that one in there too off to read another day yeah okay <laughs> all right guys well we'll see you in a month and we'll talk about um such a fun age <laughs> an age I promise of that these other two books first <laughs> <laughs> all right bye girls bye. all right bye, bye.